Reformed faith um, concerning the necessity of knowing God through the lens of Scripture, the importance of being a God-centered creature. Uh, Brian discussed how uh, he discussed the creator-creature distinction and how, uh, and how, necessity it is, how necessary it is uh, that we know where we stand with God, our proper uh, domain, our proper position as creatures before our Creator. And then after that, we meditated on some key themes of the Bible that demonstrated uh, the, some certain aspects and attributes of God. And last week, we went over a crucial topic, if you remember, over the sovereignty of God and the decree of God. And this week, I want us to look at this, the theocentricity of the Reformed faith. Uh, so how, how knowing who God is affects our everyday from a historical perspective, okay? And since we are commemorating uh, and celebrating in our midst the Reformers and the Reformation today, which was the great work that God accomplished in bringing His church out of darkness, uh, I thought it was fitting to tie the Reformers in and the Reformation in uh, to our topic today, um, you know, what is, the Reforma- what, is Ref- what is Reformed theology without the Reformation? Getting back into origin. So on the outside, I just want to ask us a question. What do you think made the Reformers, what do you think made the Reformers, Reformers? What do you think? The Word. The Word. You stole my answer. You must have been looking up here. The Word. Uh, nothing else could have made a reformer a reformer except the Bible, except how their consciences were informed with truth, except what the Bible teaches. And I believe that's exactly, uh, that's exactly what made the reformers what they were. Uh, the Word of God became the central focus and the rule of faith for the life of the church. And so without a doubt, it is a wholehearted return back to the Bible, back to the Bible, back to the authority of the Bible, Back to biblical doctrine, back to a biblical understanding of salvation, what the Bible teaches about God and man, and how that informs our worship, how that informs our worship. And so it was this controversy of the Reformation, um, the need for Reformation, stirred up by the Reformers that helped us to formulate the doctrine we now believe. And we're going to get into this. So here's some important dates for anyone who's taking notes, or if you just want to think about these with me. Um... But since you're all reformed here, maybe all of you, I can't speak for all of you, who knows the date of the Reformation or the the date that really that began, formally began maybe, putting the Reformation in place when Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses? Who knows the date? 15, that's right, that's right. Anybody else know? maybe (laughs) no that's good that's right October if you want to write these down I'm going to give you some dates and things I'm going to try to set the scene Uh, since we're talking about the theocentricity of the reformed faith I kind of want to talk about the origins of the reformed faith and the origins of the theocentricity or the God-centeredness of the reformed faith and so October 31st 1517 Martin Luther posts his 95 theses outlining the concerns he would like to debate over the corruptions of the RCC, I'll just use that, the Roman Catholic Church, formally beginning the Protestant Reformation. Um, 1526, 
William Tyndale publishes a translation of the New Testament in English. 1536, William Tyndale is executed for translating the Bible in English. He wanted the common man to have access to the Bible in his own tongue. The Roman Catholic Church held the Bible captive so as to keep the people captive to their authority and their traditions rather than solely to the Word of God. And lastly, uh, a little over maybe 25 years after the beginning, when 25 years after Martin Luther had posted the 95 Theses, is 1545 through 63, and this is the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, which was the 19th Ecumenical Council of the Roman Catholic Church, and they would get together to clarify, to reform and clarify doctrine. Then the conclusion of Session 6, Session 6, out of 25 sessions, many times that they gathered to hold these meetings to clarify their own doctrine. Session, session 6, Canon number 9, said, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is, uh, is justified in such wise as to mean, meaning in such a way as to mean, that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed, meaning he must have, he must have prepared his own self by his works and by merits, and disposed by the movement of his own will, he says, let him be anathema. And that was the reaction to what the reformers set out at the Reformation. Uh, after, of course, many issues were being dealt with. And it just so happened that one thing led to another. The 95 Theses were all about the corruptions in the Catholic Church. One of the primary ones was indulgences, which the Pope would grant, basically. It, it, was, a, it was a grant that if you were, if, uh, uh, if you were to... Um, uh, it was a grant by the Pope of remission. It was a grant of the Pope by, uh, of remission of the temporal punishment in purgatory, uh, still due for sins after absolution. And so that was the primary reason is that they were selling these indulgences, selling these grants and taking people's money uh, for, for something that the Pope had no authority to grant. It was really incredible. And so, so we said that our topic was the theocentricity of the Reformed faith, and we want to look at how did the Reformed faith come about? How did it become theocentric? And I think what we're going to see is essentially how God, through the Reformation exodus, uh, made us more theocentric or God-centered um, uh, in our doctrine and in our life. So we're going to do a quick little exercise here. Let me take this down. And we'll show you, I just want to show you the differences, some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church believed and then the Protestant reaction and the correction, the refutation to those things and where our beliefs became formulated. So we'll say here, the Roman Catholic Church, one here. One of their concerns, so this is one of their concerns when it comes to concerning the rule of faith. They had tradition and 
scripture. Now, the reformers said what? Sola Scriptura, right? And you can all yell it out. I know you know the answers to this one. They said, Scripture alone. They said, Scripture alone. And concerning justification, for instance, they said, faith in what? Faith in works. And the reformers said what? Faith alone. They said faith alone at this point. And the next point here is how is salvation received? The Catholic Church says grace and or accompanied with merit. And what do the reformers say? Grace alone. Grace alone. That's right. And then, and then you have a couple more here on the mediatorial role of Christ. It's really incredible what the Catholic Church believed. They would say, for Christ, Mary. And then they would say the, uh, they would say the saints. And then what do the Reformers say? Christ alone. Christ alone. Sorry, you can't probably see this now. That's okay, you know it by heart. And the last one is, to whom shall we give credit to, right? Who shall we give credit to? They would say God. Here, they would actually say the, uh, the church as well. They would say the church. The priests and all the people that are, that are uh, condoning the service, the people that are, uh, that are doing the services, church. And they would say also, they would say the saints, or the, inter the intercession of the saints, to which, what did the reformers reply? Soli Deo Gloria. Seo, soli Deo Gloria. And so you can see here, just looking at, how did, how did we become more theocentric in our doctrine? You can see right here, how did the, we see, where the, we see in the Reformation, the Reformed faith, the Reformation giving birth to the Reformed faith, and exactly on which points, which this really encapsulates the whole, the entire Reformed faith, if you put it together, uh, are the stances on scripture, on faith, how is grace, how is salvation uh, received, the mediatorial role of Christ, to whom shall we give credit for salvation and redemption? All this thing, all, all of these, these different parts of doctrine, these aspects of Christianity really encapsulate all that we believe in the Reformed faith in some way or another. And this is, this right here where you see is how the Reformed faith became so theocentric. Uh, and you begin to see how it exactly, you, you see how exactly we are phasing into, we are refuting, we are correcting, and this is the stances, these are the stances that we're coming to. And so what initially began as a reaction to the corruption and abuses within the Roman Catholic Church ultimately led to shedding a sharp contrast uh, between what the RCC believed and what the Formers believed about the authority of Scripture, uh, the doctrine of justification, the source of our acceptance with God, the mediatorial role of Christ, and the proper focus and thanks and credit due and the aim of all things. And so by the grace of God, the elements that we've highlighted here that were practiced in the RCC seem, probably to most of us, very foreign. 
when you start to think about these things, about how is salvation received, what does Mary have to do as, an, uh, you know, as a mediator? Some of us have probably never even heard of that before. It's so foreign to you, and you have the Reformers to thank for that. They are the ones who brought about the Reformation. They are the ones who brought you to a more theocentric understanding of Christianity. Isn't that incredible? It's remarkable. And so that's exactly what God did. God used brave and godly uh, men to confront the corruption that existed and to purge the church of doctrine that was inconsistent with the word of God. Um, but that came at a great cost as well. Uh, many men and women lost their lives. Uh, these people were willing to die for what they believed and for the right to worship freely, uh, for the right to worship according to their conscience. And uh, Luther knew the power of the Roman Catholic Church. They were extremely powerful and the consequences of opposing its beliefs and its traditions. In fact, in, uh, after Luther had posted his 95 Theses in Latin, uh, they were published in German so that a wider audience could read what he had posted. Not everyone could read, uh, not everyone had the ability to, but sometimes someone who could read uh, would get the public together and he would begin to read it out loud and people could just understand very clearly what exactly he was saying. And uh, it was no longer a topic for scholars at that point. What it, what it was at the beginning, uh, it, was, uh, it was tradition, if you would, uh, to go and post something on uh, the castle door uh, if, you wanted to, if, you wanted, if you wanted to bring awareness to something or if you wanted to debate something, you could do that. And that's ultimately what Luther wanted to do. But the public, but with this not only being a topic among, among scholars, it became a topic uh, for something that, since it was published in German, many people could now read it and understand it and hear it. And uh, it created an uproar. Uh, and this really disturbed the Catholic Church. In 1521, Pope Leo X excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church and declared him a heretic. Luther was so despised by the church that a death warrant was issued, giving anyone permission to kill him. Man, crazy. Anyone. So that was the cause of remaining true to your conscience, remaining loyal to Christ. Um, when you're opposing the Roman Catholic Church and their traditions. Uh, it was a volatile period for the church. The times and the temperament of the surrounding and opposing religious climate, culture was stormy. Uh, it was unsteady. It was uncertain. Uh, everything was escalating quickly, as, as we would say, at this point. And for what the RCC called heretics, uh, for those people who they called heretics, the punishment was severe. You had to be brave. You had to be courageous and bold about what you believed. Isn't that incredible? Remarkable. So this is just, uh, just a little bit of introduction that I wanted to give you some context to provide just a very brief understanding about the Reformation and the ramifications of the Reformation and how God used that for good. Uh, which, is, which is whom, as I said earlier, you have them to think for the theocentric view that we have of Scripture, of God, the reception of salvation, justification, the mediatorial role of Christ, all to the glory of God. Amen? Okay, and let's move on here. Now, 
we want to see how the Reformed faith is theocentric or God-centered. But has it ever occurred to you that God is theocentric? And what do I mean by that? What do you think? Who wants to give it a shot? Brian's not allowed to because I told him already. (laughs) Has it ever occurred to you that God is theocentric? What do I mean by that? That has to be true, right? That has to be the case. So God in his, in his infinite totality, at the very being and core of God, he is theocentric. As uh, brother was just saying, he is theocentric. And he commands we be theocentric. The whole law, the whole law was to make the people theocentric. All the Bible is to make us theocentric. God commands that we be. Uh, for our good and his glory. And in fact, sin is the result of men and angels losing their God-centeredness. Losing their God-centeredness. Men become corrupt when they lose sight of the source of all goodness and glory. Uh, There is nothing better for man than for him to be united with his God. And there is nothing worse for man than for him to be separated from his God. Um, God knows that he is best for us. God loves his creatures so much that he has hedged us in with his own wisdom. Uh, he has, even in his law, he has, in his law, uh, the purpose was to reorient the sinful lives of men to their holy and good God. Since God is theocentric, he loves to point us to himself. Um, turn, me to, turn me to Psalm 25, 8. Psalm 25, 8, and then we're going to flip back to Psalm 23. Just to show the theocentricity of God. The theocentricity of God. Who can read that for me? Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. That way points to him, by the way. That way points to Him. That way is through Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, That way is accompanied by the Spirit. That way is to God Himself. Uh, But ultimately, God works redemption. He pours out His goodness to His creatures because He is firmly committed to His own glory. Firmly committed to His own glory. You might hear a little bit of John Piper in me as I say some of these things, but you can't get around it. You can't get around it. He is firmly committed to His own glory. Psalm 23, go there. We are informed in Psalm 23 why God has chosen to be so gracious to sinners. Psalm 23, verse 1 starts, The Lord is my shepherd. Now that is just an amazing phrase. I think it's the reason I love Psalm 23 is because I get to say that every single time. The Lord is my shepherd. Sinners should not have the privilege of saying these unfathomably glorious words. The Lord is my shepherd. Own him as our own. I shall not want, and God is all I need. He is all. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. All those things he does to bless me. Do you see that? He does all those things in Psalm 23 to bless me, but the ultimate aim of this blessing and instructing me in the way and guiding me in my life, look how it finishes. It says, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Isn't that wonderful? For his namesake. God is good to us because he is committed to his own glory. God is for God. God is for God. Any questions on that? Any thoughts? Amen. Amen. It's verses like this, I think, that led John Piper to say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that means that God is zealous. He is zealous to aid the praise of his people. He is zealous to aid the joy of his people because he is more glorified in it. He gets more glory uh, the more satisfaction we find in him. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's my next point. That's my next point. That's the, the, this is the logic behind it. That's, and that's, that's good. Uh, the aim of the goodness of God is the glory of God. The aim of his goodness to his people is the glory of God. The reason he exercises his attributes and pours out goodness and grace in our lives is because he's committed to his glory. The aim of his goodness is himself. It is his glory. And that must be the case. It must be the case that he is the aim of all that he does. Because if God is the highest, and if he is uh, the most blessed, the most glorious, I mean, if he is the apex of all things, then to aim at anything else, right? To aim at anything else would be to aim at what is lower and inferior, but God doesn't do that. God aims at himself. If he didn't, he would be an idolater. He would think something is better than himself. If he aimed lower, does that make sense? If he aimed lower, God aims high, and he does it for our good and his glory. Um, any questions on that? Man, so good. So all things ultimately will redound to the indescribably, the infinite glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The central reason for man's existence is for the praise and glory of his maker. Um, he's the king of kings. Even though he does all things for his namesake, the Bible even says his name is glorious. His name is glorious. Uh, he is the apex of everything. And if you, even if you look in the New Testament, that is why he is the divine fountain of the gospel. 
Where's the gospel come from? He's the divine fountain of the gospel. He's the focal point of the kingdom, which is why Jesus' primary and foremost message when he was preaching, if you want to actually, you want to go there with me? Turn your Bibles to Mark 1.14. And you can see this so clear, so glorious. Mark 1.14 and Mark, Mark 1.14 and 15. He says, now, he says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Emilio has said this a million times. Ultimately, the gospel is not about you or me. The gospel is about God and what he has redemptively schemed for Christ to accomplish. And we can be partakers of that. Um, and so the theocentricity of God, I think, has to be the starting, port, the starting point of the theocentricity of our faith. The theocentricity of our faith doesn't rest in any man. It, it is first founded and based in God's God-centeredness, in God's God-centeredness, that he is the ultimate aim. And this was so for the reformers. This was so for the Puritans. They used to teach a concept called quorum deo. Quorum is a, a Latin preposition, which means before, just like our prepositions that we use, before. You could be speaking before an audience. You could be preaching before a congregation, which means that you are in the presence of that people. Now it says quorum deo, which means before God. You are in the presence of God. Really remarkable. And the motivation to live quorum Deo was an invitation for all men and women to live and count their lives as sacred. Sacred and valuable to God. All of life is holy and to be set apart for God. And this created a major shift in the minds of believers post-Reformation. And uh, I think Brian went in this a little bit as well in one of his, uh, one of his lessons that the point of motivation was strongly emphasized after the Reformation when the Protestants no longer adhered to the Roman distinction of the sacred and secular divide. Just, uh, someone defined the sacred and secular divide for us. I know we've taught that a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. That's right. One of them was more sacred. The things that the priests did, you know, uh, the things that the people who were working in the church were doing, the more of a public life or something was more valuable than what the laymen were doing. It was more valuable in such a way that there was this distinction, a clear, tangible distinction of what I do is sacred, my calling is sacred, and what you do is not. You're just kind of a common man. Uh, the layman, and so there was no value placed upon that. So even though this, uh, this divide may not be as tangible as it was 500 years ago, uh, it is and can nevertheless rear its head in our hearts. It can rear its head in our hearts and, uh, and in our churches. Is Question for you, is every member equally valuable in the church? 
Yeah? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. We have to that's we have to stand on that. We have to maintain this. Every member is as equally valuable as every other member. There may be distinctions in purpose for every member, but there are not distinctions of value to where some are less cared for than others. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12 quickly. And this is a, this, these passages, uh, if you want to devote yourself to being the best church member that you can, go back and read all these passages. Go back and read the kind of care, the kind of value that every member has, that none of us should be discouraged about the calling that God has placed upon us. None of us should feel as if we are less valuable because God has set a different purpose on our calling than for the person next to us. But you see here, really, I guess you could start, and uh, it starts in verse 12, and really the section that I'm aiming at is verse 12 all the way to verse 25, but I'm just going to pick out a couple of verses here. In verse 12, for even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ, for by one Spirit we're all baptized, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. And he says, for the body is not one member, but many. There are many members in the body. There is not just one member. And we should not place, we should not place or identify as one person is more valuable over the others. But see, all of us is equally valuable in the church. And if you skip down to verse 25, after he addresses all the different members and how it is God's design to place them where he places them and for the purpose that he has for them and their calling, he says, he goes on in verse 24, whereas, whereas, he says, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, he says, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And that is important, that we have the same care for one another, uh, despite the, the callings that we have and that we should be content where God has placed us. Amen? Um, and I think it's very easy if we go and we apply uh, different degrees of value uh, upon people and what they do uh, to, to reconstruct this, sacri this sacred-secular divide about this is important, this is not important. What I do is really not important, but what he does is really important. Uh, but we have to own what God has, uh, the purpose that God and the calling that God has given us and walk in that, be content with that and walk confidently with that, that God has saved us and that our identity is not in our calling, it's in Christ. Um, and I would, any thoughts on that before we kind of move on? Um, <clears throat> and just maybe even a warning to the quorum, deum, the quorum Deo aspect here is that sinners are professionals at elevating themselves. They are good at elevating their value, especially when they are used by God, especially when they have a more public uh, calling. Quorum Deo tears down any suggestion or belief that my calling is higher than yours. 
And to live quorum Deo is to triumph, not only as an individual, but as a body, as a body. It motivates every believer to live boldly, uh, to see the value and worth of their calling, and to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And this was heavily taught and practiced by the Reformers and the Puritans, that the aim of life was the glory of God, to do all things in His presence. Um, and we're going to look at this next. What was the Puritan mindset of life? Their personal, individual existence before God. And so this next little section here I have is life through the lens of a Puritan. The frailty of life and the reality of death. Um, and I'll try to set the scene for us. I want to quote J.I. Packer, and he has a, a really great book called A Quest for Godliness about the Puritans. But to give you just kind of a little bit of context about their life, he writes this, the Puritans experienced systematic persecution for their faith. What we today think of as the comforts of home were unknown to them. Their medicine and surgery were rudimentary. They had no aspirins, tranquilizers, sleeping tablets, tablets, or antidepressant pills, just as they had no social security or insurance. Uh, in a world in which more than half of the adult population died young and more than half the children born died in infancy, disease, distress, discomfort, pain, and death were their constant companions. They would have been lost had they not kept their eyes on heaven and known themselves as pilgrims traveling home to the celestial city. Um, it gives you some insight into it, how... Uh, a little, bit of, a little bit of perspective, kind of what they lived with on a daily basis. And it's not like they knew any better. Uh, this was life. Um, J.R. Packer, he actually, I, I wanted to bring another quote because he says this, um, and I want your, your reaction. He says, The Puritans have taught me to see and feel the transitoriness, which is the temporary nature, the impermanent nature. He says, Of this life, to think of it with all its richness as essentially the gymnasium and dressing room where we are prepared for heaven and to regard readiness to die as the first step in learning to live. Isn't that incredible? Readiness to die is the first step in learning to live. Um, what do you think that means? When, when he says here in this quote that, that, he, that this earth, this life that we are experiencing is, is essentially a gymnasium and dressing room where we are prepared for heaven. What, what, do, you, what do you think that means? It's like Paul comparing all the time to the Olympic Games and, and you know, working out, getting ready for training. Amen. That's right. That's right. Um, picking up your cross daily. Picking up your cross daily. You know, if you think about a dressing room, uh, you're, 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 you are preparing to walk out. You're preparing to enter eternity with this life. And that is the sole aim of your life, that you're preparing. Can you say that you're preparing for eternity with the way that you live? 
Are you preparing? Do you actually bear that in mind? That one day I've got to, I have to die and stand before God. What are you doing with your life? How are you serving God? Um, we are preparing to die. And what you think about eternity will greatly impact how you live. And how you live will greatly impact your eternity. And you can be sure, uh, if you're not preparing for eternity, if you're not seeking Christ on earth, you will never find him in heaven. Um, and as Christians, we know that this life is fading. Judgment is coming. There is a fire that burns. And therefore, we should be asking God to set, set eternity before us always. You know what Jonathan Edwards prayed? Some of you know. Christian knows. What do you, what do you pray? Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Let it be always before me. Um, and I really believe our church works hard for the Lord. Um, that we want to accomplish much for Him in our time that we have. Uh, but I do fear that some don't. Some don't want to accomplish much for God uh, in this life. But you and I should be working and loving as if we wanted all to survive uh, the judgment fire um, so that our work will not burn and our, and our lives not be counted as, you know, all the time that we spent. The precious time was not just a waste. Um, and I think some of us, maybe some of you will, you may go to heaven, you may go to heaven, but you will barely emerge from the fire that consumes, consumed all of your worthless labor on earth. Um, and I don't want that to be true of any of us. I really don't. But ask yourself, how are you living? Is your life going to go up in flames? Uh, or is it going to count and endure the fires of God's judgment for believers? The purging fires that are in front of us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. And we want to live, yes, Your work. Without, without losing all your works, is that maybe, let's say, you have to go into full-time ministry or you have to be a missionary or something like that. Oh, okay. But it was what you were saying earlier about like, yeah, amen. how you do what you do, you know? Oh, yeah. Whether you're, uh, whether you're working in a cubicle for 50 years. That's right. God cares about your heart and motive, your attitude. Amen. And your Christ-likeness in that context. Amen, amen. That, no, that, that's good. I'm glad you brought that up. Because what I mean is, is life all-inclusively. Uh, that this judgment embraces everything. And when I think about that, I think about how I love my daughter. Uh, and I think that, well, some things are going to be burned. I know some things are going to be burned because there are days that I spent uh, with my daughter that I did not do this with love. Uh, you know, you went to work without faith. You know, how many times have you prayed faithlessly? Um, 
even a, um, uh, I forget his name, um, Robert Murray McChain, says, even my prayers are prayerless. Um, and I think how much is truly going to, and this means that we have to continue to, uh, to cling to Christ, to do all things by faith and love and just uh, keeping ourselves near the cross, near the cross. Um, we want to live with eternity's values and in view. And um, look at the time. But what is the beat of your existence? Is that what you want to do? I remember there's an old hymn that I used to, uh, used to sing and, and meditate on. It's called All for Jesus. Uh, and, it's, it, and it says, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Let my hands perform his bidding. Let my feet run in his ways. Let my eyes see Jesus only. Let my lips speak forth his praise, all for Jesus. We need to be doing all for Jesus. Um, that needs to be our banner. We need to live in light of eternity, on the edge of eternity. And the Reformers, the Puritans alike, they always lived uh, as if they were on death row. Um, the frailty of life, the hostile conditions of the environment, it helped to preserve a sobriety that kept them living serious and devoted lives that were committed to accomplish the ultimate goal of their existence, which was what? What is the ultimate goal of your existence? To glorify God. That is, that's what they wanted to do. That was the tone, the beat of their existence. They wanted to glorify God. In Packer's words, they were, spiritually speaking, always packed up and ready to go. They lived in light of eternity. And they can certainly help us to live in light of eternity as well. Uh, any thoughts on that? I'm debating on going into this next section. Um, what's that? <laughs> Should I stop? <laughs> maybe, let, maybe, let's, maybe let's look at a couple more things and, and then we're going to wrap up. The pilgrims, you, you kind of see, and this was, man, now that Emilio and Lynn are in the room, you know, this would be a great, you know, maybe in the next year or so to, to have a series on the Puritans, and that'd be great. I loved because you need you you need you need multiple weeks. You need multiple months, possibly, if you want to just do an exhaustive study on the Puritans and and really get into how they lived and what they believed and who they were. Um, but they had, as they lived, they had a pilgrim mentality, and that is the the next section of my notes here that they had a pilgrim mentality, and this defined who and what they were. Uh, as they, as they, as uh, during their stay on planet Earth, um, who they were, what they did. Uh, J.R. Packer again. He says Puritans saw themselves as God's pilgrims traveling home. They were God's warriors battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and God's servants under orders to do all the good they could as they went along. And I suppose the, uh, that the, the, the pilgrim mentality of Puritans is most vividly portrayed in a very popular little book. Anybody know what it is? 
The pilgrim's progress. There it is. The pilgrim mentality. Uh, you kind of see in that, you get a glimpse into the mindset of a Puritan. This is how they saw life uh, themselves. They were sojourners. They were pilgrims. And they saw themselves uh, on the world, their existence, for God's glory, to do the most they could, to, to do the most they could, uh, the best they could for their fellow man and for the glory of God. That is what they wanted to do. They believed that if they were going to be for the world, they must also be against the world. Uh, they must not live according to the world, but must live antithetical to the world. And what do you think that means? That the Puritans, they, they had it in their mind that we need to live antithetical to the world. What do you suppose that means? Go in the opposite direction, right? Uh, they had to directly oppose the world and its ways. Um, and they had to live in a way that declares that every opposing worldview, every opposing worldview uh, to the Christian worldview is incompatible with God's word. It is incompatible with God's word and Christ's lordship. Puritans believe that Christians must distance themselves from the world. Uh, this, this dimension of Christian living emphasizes the pilgrims' status uh, to Scripture's calling every believer, uh, to call every believer. Christians are called to pull away from the world's culture, living antithetically to it. They are to view themselves as aliens in their own society, sometimes even in their own families. They are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, uh, nor have fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. Uh, with love for God and their neighbor, they are to walk humbly and circumspectly, living as pilgrims in this world, which groans with travail because of the pervasiveness of sin. And because of sin, believers are in a perpetual conflict, fighting endless battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is a little, a little view into the mind of the Puritans, and hopefully at some other time, we can uh, get in. You know, I'm going to lead you just with one quote, and I sent, I sent this to uh, maybe a few brothers, but uh, maybe uh, the Puritans on, uh, since we're about to go and listen to preaching. There's an amazing quote that shows you not only the value of uh, the Puritans placed upon the Bible, but also the kind of centrality the preachers placed upon the Bible for their sermons. Uh, Miller McClure, he wrote this, For the Puritans. The sermon is not just hinged to Scripture. It quite literally exists inside the Word of God. The text is not in the sermon, but the sermon is in the text. And put summarily or put directly, listening to a sermon is being in the Bible. And so I pray that we would be in the Bible as we listen to the sermon today. Amen?